Welcome to the 2020 Baby Podcast with me, Pamela Douglas, and uh, my friend and colleague down the line from New Zealand, Dr. Nikki Mills, um, to talk with me today to have a good old chat, really, which I've been very much looking forward to, on the functional anatomy of sucking and swallowing in um, breastfed babies. So welcome, Nikki. Thank you, Pamela. It's just great to have you available to um, talk about this topic that both of us find so fascinating. Um, so I wonder if you could start by um, telling us just a little bit about yourself, if that's okay. Of course. Um, so I'm a paediatric ENT surgeon. Uh, I did my fellowship training at Great Ormond Street in London and then came back to New Zealand to work at Starship Children's Hospital, which is a tertiary referral children's hospital for the whole of New Zealand um, about 11 years ago. Uh, I have a special interest in airway problems um, and it became apparent to me very early in my consultant uh, experiences that a lot of babies who have problems with breathing also have problems with feeding. Uh, so feeding and, and airway for me go hand in hand. Um, but I also realised really early on that a lot of babies, if they have difficulty feeding, the first thing that kind of becomes problematic is breastfeeding. And often those babies are transitioned to bottle feeding because of difficulties. And um, that became something really important to me to try and understand what was happening with those babies and how we could support them, if at all possible, to establish or continue successful breastfeeding. So it did become a passion of mine very early on um, in my career and that's something that I've just I guess followed and and um, made made something of. <laughs> oh, well very definitely um, made something of because I have here on my desk and I know these aren't the only papers that you have published but certainly um, last year and this year five papers not all out yet but um a very substantial body of, of groundbreaking work in this area. So I've been, I mean, we've had um, some really terrific conversations on a number of occasions in the past, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to opening up some of this now. I, I wonder if a place to start isn't um, with the, you might say, the um, epidemic of diagnoses of ankyloglossia in um, high-income countries over the last, mm, let's say, 15 years. Um, in 2018, a paediatrician and PhD student um, and my team published some Australian data on this showing that between 2006 and 2016, the numbers of Medicare-funded phrenotomies had increased by 420%. And that Medicare data didn't capture phrenotomies done, for instance, by dentists who anecdotally are doing a lot, maybe even most of the phrenotomies. Actually, in the Australian Capital Territory in that period, there was no dentist, there was no access to laser phrenotomy and the incidence of phrenotomy that was Medicare funded increased by 3,710%. So you know, there's there's some thought that that may better reflect the increased incidence of phrenotomy in that time. And then there's other data that's come out from North America, Canada, and uh, and just this year, Way and uh, his team, including Jonathan Walsh, have published an update of the uh, US data showing that um, between 2010-2016, the rate of phrenotomy had doubled. And that was just mirroring trends of exponential growth, you know, exponential um, growth in the in the um, incidence of phrenotomy prior to 2012. So I was wondering, Nikki, if you're seeing anecdotally, you know, in your experience, any decrease in the incidence of phrenotomy there in New Zealand, 
Do you have a feel of where things are at where you are in terms of rates of phrenotomy? I, I think it's really hard to know and the reason for that you pointed out is that I think a lot of them are being done by dentists um, and there is no way of easily capturing those numbers. So um, I, th I think it's really hard to, to know um, how many are actually being done. I, I certainly... I'm hoping that the the trend is coming towards people being a little bit more cautious and thoughtful rather than rushing to blaming the lingual frenulum as being the cause of all breastfeeding problems. Um, and certainly that's been, I guess, one of my motivators for doing my research is really just trying to understand better what the lingual frenulum is, what we're cutting and kind of moving towards trying to think about and understand biomechanically when it's potentially causing problems um, so that we get better at understanding which babies are most likely to benefit from a phrenotomy and we're not doing procedures on babies that aren't going to get benefit. And I guess that's the, the, the two primary concerns for me are relating to the potential for harm. So, you know, I think although it's perceived as being a very safe procedure, and I'm sure on, you know, the great majority of babies, there are no significant um, complications, but I think it is a surgical procedure. Um, and I think uh, we need to be really careful about um, being, as, being better at knowing when it's going to to have enough benefit that those complications or risks are warranted to put a baby through um, a procedure. And yes, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And actually you were involved in a team that um, quite recently published some, some New Zealand data around potential side effects. Could you just speak briefly to that, Nikki, what, what that yeah. study showed? So um, it's, it was really... I guess a small um, case reports on infants that had been admitted to hospital specifically relating to complications from phrenotomy. So as, as a weakness of the study, we have no de denominator and really we were just picking up and reporting to increase the awareness of complications um, relating to phrenotomy. And some of them were direct complications relating to pain and poor oral intake um, and failure to thrive, uh, bleeding, things that are, are well known, but also thinking a little bit about misdiagnoses. So babies that had had problems breastfeeding because of congenital cardiac anomalies that hadn't been diagnosed and um, I, I think it was um, important to publish it because really no one had looked at those um, kinds of complications other than just, you know, a few case reports or small case, case series studies, on, yeah. on, on, on quite catastrophic um, complications. So it was really just saying um, we, we need to be thinking about this a little bit more carefully. Yes. Thanks. Well, it was important, I thought, to see to see it come out. So, well, Nikki, just lately I've been listening in to some conferences for lactation consultants, conferences and workshops on ankyloglossia, on, on tongue tie. And, uh, you know, many of these talks actually start... Um, by showing what has been a, a groundbreaking diagram, actually, or a diagram that arises out of your groundbreaking work around um, infant floor of mouth fascia. I wondered, I'm sure you know the diagram I mean, I wondered whether yeah. you could talk to those findings, you know, what that diagram is saying um, for a moment, if you would. Sure. Um, so, th so that uh, 
concept that I was trying to do um, visually, you know, with a with a picture. Because I'm a very so well, actually, it's it's a very visual illustration. (laughs) So, so um, that was based on my both my anatomy and my histology research. So it's based on real anatomy, you know, real that that exists. And I guess it's really um, the key relating to that component of my PhD research was that I believe that the the popular construct or understanding of the lingual frenulum is that it's a midline structure and it's often referred to as a cord or a band or a string. And people, um, you know, when the tongue is elevated and the lingual frenulum is raised and and put under tension, um, it it forms a a structure that's visible in the midline. And a lot of people, um, and and this is universal, it's not, um, you know, it includes Grey's Anatomy and the Bible and, you know, it's it's widespread, (laughs) that concept. And I think... um, what I try to show is that I, what I think the understanding was, if you imagine a clothesline with something draped over it, that that string that forms the clothesline is what people thought the lingual frenulum was. And so from a surgical point of view, um, you know, if that's what you're cutting, and, you know, and if the concept of it is that it's a string or a band, then that's a very specific um, procedure, if you like, from a surgical point of view of what you're cutting. But that that certainly wasn't my experience um, clinically. And when I first got asked to divide a, a tongue tie on a baby, I was uncomfortable doing it before I really understood what I was cutting and when I should be doing it and how I should be doing it. And I searched really hard for that information and just from my own personal level of comfort, I couldn't find the information that I wanted to be happy to do that procedure. So that was, I guess, the motivation for doing yeah. my research was that I, I couldn't find the answers that I felt I needed as a clinician to do that procedure. So interestingly, with my research, I found that actually it's, it's not a true midline structure at all. And hopefully from those diagrams, you can see that it actually is a layer of fascia that spans across the whole floor of mouth and that it's actually the tongue elevating and creating tension in that layer of fascia that draws it up into a fold that we can see visibly in the midline. And there's lots of variations between different individuals that I think now we can explain, you know, when we see a very thin transparent frenulum or when we see a, a less well-defined thick chunky one, we can actually understand from an anatomy point of view and, and thinking about the layers of the mucosa, the fascia underneath that, and then the genoglossus muscle fibres below that, that, that what we actually see, we can explain that and explain why different individuals, you know, the appearance is different um, and understand that. So I, I think there's lots of things that my research hasn't answered, like still when should we be dividing it and what's the impact and how do we decide which individuals it's going to benefit. But I think at the very least we have the foundation of understanding what it is and and when we look at it, what we're seeing. Um, and I think from certainly from a surgical perspective, I think that's the building blocks of, you know, surgery for sure. Mm, mm. Well, I was really interested then listening in to these conferences to find that even though the presenters were able to to state clearly out of your work that that the frenulum is not you know a midline band or indeed midline structure that they, they, they would nevertheless move on to conceptualizing breastfeeding problems in terms of restricted tongue mobility due to tight oral connective tissues and indeed tight um, floor of mouth fascia and uh, and so you know, there's there's been an increasing integration of of body work 
into um, the teams that that are working with babies who've been diagnosed with tongue tie, the concept that um, conservative treatment might involve um, a whole range of um, techniques for um, working with um, tight fascia with restricted oral connective tissues, um, particularly intraorally, but a concept of, of these um, connective tissue and fascial tightnesses having implications right throughout the body, actually. So, so body, work, um, body workers, whether it's craniosacral therapists, myofunctional um, oro, um, myofunctional therapists, um, chiropractic osteopaths have, have become, I think, increasingly engaged in working with these bubs who've been diagnosed with restricted oral connective tissues. But also in the event that the, the body work or the work with um, latchin positioning um, doesn't get the desired results, then then phrenotomy for diagnoses of anterior tongue tie, for diagnoses of posterior tongue tie, upper lip tie and indeed in some cases buccal ties are still being recommended. And, uh, and this would be reflected in my clinical work where I find it hard at the minute to see any real decrease in the dominance of the diagnosis of tongue tie in babies with breastfeeding problems in women with nipple pain as they're breastfeeding in those bubs who are very unsettled at the breast. So I wondered whether we're understanding the implications of your work properly. Um, that's a that's a tricky question in a way because I think. Um, I think there needs to be more research building on what I've done, looking at biomechanical um, impact of different variations of lingual frenulum morphology, so the appearance of the frenulum, and understanding when particular, um, I guess, a appearance and function of a, a lingual frenulum is impacting on how the tongue moves. And I think both both you and I understand that it's far more complicated um, than just that, in that a, a tongue that looks the same in one baby um, will behave in, and um, function very differently than that with another baby because we also have the anatomy of the mother uh, and their nipple breast tissue elasticity and size, but also, as we've talked about, the huge impact of positioning and how much uh, maternal breast tissue is in the infant's mouth and therefore impacting how much the baby's tongue needs to lift to create a vacuum. So all of those factors are things that are, to me, seem far more important to try and recognise and optimise before you start cutting a baby's lingual frenulum. And that would be a kind of last resort thing rather than um, something that you do, you know, as the first thing on the list, um, given that there are so many factors that can be improved Um by understanding, you know, how how you can manipulate positioning and, and uh, I, you know, the, the myofunctional therapy stuff, I think if it has put a little bit of a handbrake on jumping straight to surgery and thinking about other things that can be done um, to improve, uh, you know, what's happening um, during feeding and that some babies are not going to, jump straight to surgery, I think that's a good thing, um, rather than all of them going straight to surgery without even thinking or looking at anything else. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, also that this is a what I consider a vulnerable population and that this is a very emotionally charged thing. You know, it's so important to so many mothers to be able to breastfeed their babies and when things aren't going well, I think they're easily exploited by people telling them things um, and charging them lots of money and promising them things. So I think 
I I worry about exploitation of um, you know mothers and young babies when things aren't going well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, in in the way I conceptualize it um, if we're thinking conservative interventions and yet we know that that if you like work around latch and positioning which um, as you know I will refer to as fit and hold in our gestalt breastfeeding work that remains a research frontier so you know to my mind this is this is like the big blind spot isn't it how can we avoid inappropriate medicalization when we we really don't have much evidence at all to show that the approaches that we're using to support that fit and hold to optimize that latch and positioning are at all effective and and in fact there's there's even that one victorian study um, that showed it's very well conducted large numbers and it showed that one of the most popularly used approaches to fit and hold actually worsens nipple pain fourfold. That's the sort of shaping of the breast and the cross-cradle bringing on of the bub. So, yeah, so anyway, as you know, that's that's been a real uh, passion of mine to look at how we can support um, that fit and hold to optimise pain-free, efficient milk transfer. And, and I think from, from a biomechanical perspective I can understand how um, the fit and hold is important and can change the biomechanics you know intraorally with the infant um, significantly I think it's not it's not that hard to understand or conceptualize um, how a how a deeper latch and um, more intraoral breast tissue is going to improve um, how the, the infant's tongue needs to move. And, yeah. you know, I think from a from a clinical perspective, um, you know, there are so many things to me that, that make sense about the, the work that you do and the positioning and how important that is, both, both for the mother and for the baby and how, um, you know, thinking about your concept of the dialing up and dialing down, you know, the, that if the baby feels more supported and secure, um, which they certainly do when, when you position them in the gestalt uh, approach, um, that it changes completely how they're able to function if they're, if they're having difficulties, if they, if they are not stressed. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's um, right. That's it. Yeah. Well, you know, I think going, go on. going back to sorry, just going back to what you said about the medicalization of um, around the, the lingual frenulum. I think that's certainly been one of the really big things that I've been pushing um, with the education that I do around the, the research that I've done is that really trying to push the concept that having a lingual frenulum is a normal part of anatomy. And that the problem around the grading um, that's used is that they grade the appearance of the lingual frenulum as grades of ankyloglossia. And so, in fact, if you think of grade one through grade four, that encompasses all possible appearances of a lingual frenulum. So if if you use the grading based on that visual appearance for ankyloglossia, you're in fact labelling every lingual frenulum as being abnormal and potentially being the cause of problems. Um, so, so my approach is really pushing for people to call it a grade one frenulum or a grade two frenulum, you know, and to use that as a way of describing what you see but not labelling it as abnormal, so not labelling it as grade one ankyloglossia, labelling it as a grade one frenulum and and saying specifically that you're just looking at one aspect of morphology when you're doing that. Absolutely. Um, And in fact, it might be useful if if we're doing this sort of translation of, of this tool, and I think, is this your thinking here of the Kirillis tool in particular, um, I have it in my mind what you're meaning by grade one to four, but maybe you could just tell me what you have in mind so, there. So both Kotlo and Kirillis 
looked at the attachment in the midline to the, the ventral tongue or the undersurface of the tongue. And when you place the lingual frenulum under tension, so that's either elevating or retracting the tongue, you create a, a fold that's visible. Um, and they have allocated, if you like, the, the frenulum that attaches towards the tip of the tongue as being a grade one. And if it doesn't uh, extend very far along the ventral surface and therefore is not a very visible or, or defined fold that that's a grade four or what people call a posterior um, ankyloglossia. But I, I think um, what I've tried to, I guess, get people to appreciate is that that's one factor of um, morphology or appearance that can be reasonably easily um, assessed and visualised. But I think there are lots of other factors that potentially are impacting on tongue function. Yeah. Um, that, that includes, you know, the length of the frenulum between the tongue and, and the insertion onto the mandible. And also the histology research that I did showed that there's variable amounts of elasticity or elastin and type 3 collagen in the, in the floor of mouth fascia. And I think some individuals have more distensibility or elasticity of the frenulum than others. So that's another variable. Um, but I think the other thing that, again, is really underappreciated when everyone's focusing just on the frenulum is that um, the position of the mandible, so the lower jaw and its position relative to the upper jaw, alters where the tongue sits in the oral cavity and the other thing is that, you know, from a developmental point of view, the position of the mandible affects the position of the tongue, you know, as the fetus is developing and alters the shape and contour of the hard palate. And if the hard palate is very high, then to create a vacuum with the, with the nipple and areola in the mouth, um, you know, it's a, it's a different space that the the tongue's working in and, and the biomechanics of that is a little different and also the, the position and shape of the mandible affects the the length of the tongue so the free length of the tongue from where it attaches to the floor of mouth to the tip of the tongue can be quite short particularly in infants that have a a setback mandible or what we call retronathia or micronathia. And from a biomechanical point of view, I think that changes, you know, how their tongue works. And I think those babies definitely as a as a subgroup anecdotally seem to have more difficulties breastfeeding and um, I think positioning at the breast becomes really important and perhaps needs to be adapted in different ways than an infant that has a, a longer tongue and a more kind of neutral um, mandible position. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think the frenulum is just one component. And yes, you know, if it is really limiting, you know, how the tongue's moving and, and that individual and that with that mother is causing difficulties, you know, I think there are definitely some cases where division can make a difference, you know, to how how the tongue moves and how breastfeeding works. But I think there are many factors, not just the frenulum, that impact um, on on biomechanics. And I think appreciating all of those factors is really important. Mm, so we're really talking about a complex adaptive system, a dynamic system, whether we're looking at, at the infant or we're looking at the mother-baby pair we're talking about complexity and multiple factors interacting together, um, and out of that, that, yeah, out of that complex system, um, you know, there may be the emergent issues of breastfeeding difficulties, but there's multiple compensations um, that come into play, which can stabilise the system and prevent, or if if we work well with it, actually repair emergent difficulties without needing to resort to that that if you like that um, cause effect paradigm that coming in with a surgical intervention and we could say the same for instance 
about diagnoses of gastroesophageal reflux disease, for instance, in breastfed babies. And I think the, the language that people use is really important, and that's why I've really tried to push people towards describing a frenulum rather than, you know, describing, um, you know, labelling the frenulum as ankyloglossia. Because exactly. I think if we do parents um, really... When, when problems are occurring, if someone has, has labelled a frenulum as ankyloglossia, if you're not addressing that surgically and, you know, they're having difficulties, they think either you're withholding that from them or, you know, that you're not the person that's going to be able to help them. If they have in their mind that their child has something wrong with them, that when they read on the, you know, social media, that it needs to be divided. So I think trying to get people to use language that doesn't label um, infants as having something wrong with them that needs a surgical intervention is a really, really important step. I can um, only agree. You yeah. know, in the in um, the the. There was a study done around parents with, with an unsettled baby and if a practitioner used the term reflux, even if that practitioner followed up use of that term with explanation that it's physiological, it's, you know, it's not causing the baby pain, we don't need to be treating it, nevertheless, parents quite understandably um, you know, in their exhaustion and desperation, usually with with these unsettled babies, would press um, the practitioner for a proton pump inhibitor for pharmaceutical intervention, just in the hope that it might make a difference. So yes, the power of those medical labels it it affects our our neurobiology actually in the same way that that placebo has a measurable neurobiological impact. So use of of medical labels or labels I think just as you're saying can have and it's very hard if someone comes comes to you with that label you know and you um, are dealing with already someone having the concept that there's something wrong with their baby and that there's a magic wand to fix that you know yeah yeah well I wondered if I could share with you what I thought, because as you know, Nikki, I, I have the view, well, and I, I'm not alone in having this view, that, that your work on the functional anatomy of sucking and swallowing in breastfed babies is groundbreaking internationally. And can I share with you what I have taken out as the important contributions or, you know, key contributions in, in your work, in your painstaking Um uh, <laughs> dissections, and I, I have some feel for the enormity of, of um, these dissection projects. Firstly, with the adult cadavers, and then following up with the um, the neonates. Um, and and so I suppose, you know, the, the the key things that I'd like to highlight, I guess, for those listening in on our chat, that you stated really clearly in both papers actually the, the the both the both of the anatomy papers that there's no anatomical basis for a diagnosis of posterior tongue tie um, so that's one thing actually I might even get you to speak to that for a little bit yeah sure I I think um, I like you I am I think it's a really bad term for lots of reasons. Um, the first being it's anatomically incorrect. The posterior tongue or tongue base is really nothing to do with the lingual frenulum. And I think it's misleading um, to use that terminology from an anatomy perspective. So I think, you know, to begin with, um, the, the, the initial choice of of words to describe that, I think is really, yeah, bad. So yeah, <laughs> I, yep. I think, but I think it's more than just um, you know being pedantic about that. I think it's um, the the concept of a posterior tongue tie relies on the 
the the construct of the lingual frenulum being a midline band or a midline structure. And I think if we if we think of it as a layer of fascia, um, then the posterior tongue tie and the concept that people have built around that is just incorrect. So it's not to say that um, infants who have a frenulum that doesn't extend significantly along, you know, the ventral surface of the tongue. So what what would be called a, a grade three or four ankyloglossia? So if we think about that morphology, I think it is possible that the fascia or the frenulum in those individuals is restricting how the tongue moves. But in my experience clinically, I think that configuration is really commonly associated with other anatomical um, variables or, or um, variants that make biomechanically breastfeeding more difficult. And it's not just that part, you know, that part of their anatomy that's the problem. And I don't believe that the frenulum caused those other things. I think it's much more related to mandible growth and size, that all of those things kind of go together rather than that, you know, people talk about the tongue tie causing other things. I think it's an association that that configuration kind of comes together often. Um, but as a, as a concept of what people understand as posterior tongue tie, I think it's really incorrect and unhelpful in understanding overall, you know, biomechanically and anatomically what's going on for that individual. And I would encourage people not to use it as a term. Thank you. And and so you've already touched on this, that your work showed there's no continuation between what we call the frenulum, which isn't a midline band or structure, but something that becomes apparent when the tongue is lifted to place the floor of the mouth under tension. So there's no continuation between the frenulum into the median septum of the tongue, of the tongue muscle, and yes. also, and, as you said, not into yeah. the base of the tongue. Yeah, and I, and I think that was a really important um, part of my research was to really understand how it related to the median septum. And the reason for that is I actually spoke at a conference in Australia. Um, it would have been about five or six years ago now. Um, and at that conference, there was someone who gave a talk that discussed the need for cutting deeply into the median septum of the tongue to release the frenulum. And I watched in horror the pictures that they showed me of infants that they had operated on um, and felt physically unwell watching it. And then I thought, actually, I have no nothing to back me up to support why I didn't think that was correct. So that was actually a really big turning point for me yeah. and my motivation because I thought that was um, really bad and that I thought it seemed like really the wrong thing to do to cut deeply into a baby's tongue. Um, and I think my research has 100% supported my instinct at that time but now I have the evidence for well, it. Well, that's it. <laughs> I, I have to say that early on um, I was prompted into activism around the overdiagnosis of tongue tie by the sight of a little one's ventral surface of the tongue almost splayed in two from a very deep incision up into the median septum. That actually, Nikki, and the sight of little ones with uh, suture knots hanging out of their upper gum and I think this was from labial phrenotomies that it had a bleed so the the dentist threw in some sutures but then you can imagine that little one presenting with a condition dialing up at the breast you know what you might call breast refusal or oral aversion because they're trying to breastfeed with this knot in the upper gum so they you know they're two early cases actually that that really prompted me to start looking quite closely at, at this phenomenon and, and take some kind of stand, really, around what was happening. 
Yes, and, and I mean, I've seen a, a, a large number of infants who have developed oral aversion relating to pain and stress around not only the procedure, but, you know, the, the post-procedure exercises where people, you know, poke the wound six times a day and, you know, to try and stop it uh, adhering. And, you know, babies... Babies are smart little individuals, I think. They're born really taking everything as learning about the world. And if breastfeeding becomes painful for them when they do it, of course they're not going to want to do it. Um, You know, so I think uh, we need to really um, understand that everything we do to babies has an impact on them. Um, and although, you know, I'm sure those parents aren't intentionally doing something horrendous to their babies, they're, they're doing it for what they believe is, they've been led to believe is, you know, a longer-term gain. But in the short term, if the baby's already having problems breastfeeding and then you add on to that pain and recurrent discomfort if they're, you know, having discomfort every time they feed it, you know, I think there are a significant number of babies that have phrenotomy that not only does it not improve their breastfeeding, but it actually make it worse because of, you know, these really under-reported complications from phrenology. Yes, absolutely. And that would accord with my clinical experience and either the ongoing breastfeeding issues post-phrenotomy or, in fact, the um, worsened dialing up at the breast. Which brings me to the other point, really, that I think has been very important about your work on the anatomy of the neonatal lingual frenulum because that that is your work demonstrating um, the location of the lingual nerve and its sensitivity to damage. Could you elaborate on that a bit, Nikki? So interestingly, that was really the main difference that I found between the adult and the neonates when I did the dissections was that in the neonates, the lingual frenulum, sorry, the, the lingual nerve was huge relative to the tongue, like massive. Um, so location-wise, it's very superficial, um, the, the lingual nerve branches that supply the anterior tongue um, and, and come across the ventral surface of the tongue from lateral to medial as they come towards the tip of the tongue with branches that come across onto the frenulum. So they are immediately underneath the fascia. So from a risk point of view, the deeper the phrenotomy wound and also the broader, um, if you go laterally, um, you're more likely to get into the bigger branches. But also any surgical technique that involves any thermal injury that's absorbed into the tissues deep to where you're cutting um, is more likely to cause damage to the the underlying nerves or nerve branches. So um, in the neonatal um, dissection paper, I've put pictures of that just to show how um, big those nerves are and how superficial they are, so really how... They're just exposed once you take the fascial layer away. Um, so from a phrenotomy point of view, I think that's really important to understand. And I, I guess the thing around that is that what would happen if you injured those branches is that you would have some impact on sensation of, of the anterior tongue. And from a breastfeeding point of view, um, it's really interesting. There's actually been shown that there are direct neural connections between the lingual nerve and the hypoglossal nerve branches that supply the intrinsic muscles of the tongue. So what that means is that the sensation of the front of the tongue, and if you think about this in the context of breastfeeding, that the tongue and sensation of the tongue, one, we've shown has huge nerves. So, um, you know, if we know about the homunculus and the representation of different body parts in the brain and an infant, 
the tongue is massive, right? Because everything around a baby and a baby's survival is around feeding and, and uh, tongue. Yeah. So yep. the, the, the sensation of the, the tongue um, as it touches the nipple and um, shapes around the nipple, the, the neural connections that go directly to the intrinsic muscles then can shape and cup around the nipple to create that vacuum inside the oral cavity. And that is even more basic than a reflex because a reflex is a pathway that has to go to the spinal cord and then come back again to innovate muscle action. So this, I think, is huge that they've shown that this is even more primitive and direct than a than a reflex. So we talk about rooting reflexes and sucking reflexes and um, and infants, but this this reflex, this neural pathway is about shaping the tongue and responding to touch and sensation of the tongue. So if you think with a phrenotomy that you may damage the sensation to the to the anterior tongue, you know the impact of an infant who's struggling to breastfeed. You can imagine that that's going to make all of those neural pathways um, impaired. And a baby can't tell you that their tongue is numb or doesn't feel so well or that, you know, they're having trouble coordinating and, and you know, shaping the tongue around the nipple. But there is no way of measuring that that we know. Um, so, you know, I've talked to lots of laser phrenotomy surgeons and they've said, oh, no, my babies don't get any... <laughs> sensory impairment mm. and I'm like well how, how can you be sure you yeah. know you can't yeah. measure it and you can't you're using a tool that definitely the the risk of that is increased so I think um I I hope that people um will read and understand that and and understand the potential for risk um I suspect that not many people really understand the implications of harm um if that um sensory awareness is impacted but um anyway so yeah so, so this is a particular risk you'd propose with with laser um phrenotomy versus scissors deep scissors phrenotomy so um i think from again from my own clinical experience and and sometimes i have divided lingual frenulums under general anesthetic so obviously i take babies to the operating theatre for general anaesthetics for airway endoscopies and airway procedures. And there has been occasion for me to sometimes divide a lingual frenulum in the operating theatre and using a, a scissor technique um, and, and looking with magnification and very carefully, I can see that the fascia glides over those nerves. And if you cut very carefully... Um, with scissors, not going into the genioglossus muscle fibres at all and just um, staying on the facial layer, you not harm those nerves. Um, I think if you do anything um, to stop bleeding, which would involve either um, you know a heat source such as diathermy or I have seen people silver nitrate <laughs> bleeding oh, really? under the tongue, uh, yes, That's I have. a terrible thought, I've got to say. <laughs> um, I know. It's, yeah, don't, don't Won't think about that um, too much. That um, obviously that causes, you know, that causes um, injury to the tissues. That's how it stops the bleeding is it's uh, uh, thermally coagulating. So it's creating damage to those um, tissues underneath. So certainly anything such as a laser or diathermy, and particularly in the context of, you know, um, not necessarily being able to see really carefully um, what you're doing. And in a live, awake baby um, who wriggles and cries and, you know, there's blood and things there, it's very hard to see. Exactly. Um, obviously, under general anaesthetic, you can do that in a very controlled way that you can't when they're awake and breathing and <laughs> crying and... <laughs> um, Yes, so I think um, from a technique point of view, um, I would say that I would favour um, a scissor technique over laser um, because of reducing the risk of damage to those nerves. 
I, I think the it's it's perhaps not as simple as that regarding I think with a laser obviously how it's done from a technique point of view and what kind of laser you use and how long um, you deliver laser energy in one particular location um, is going to have a huge impact on that. So it's not that all lasers are the devil and no one can possibly do a good technique using a laser. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think the potential for risk or harm, particularly if someone's a little bit more heavy-handed um, and uh, holding the laser longer and delivering more energy to that area, the risk is higher. And then we, we have human factor science really that tells us the more often we do a particular thing or a particular procedure then naturally you know the the greater the risk um, of unintended outcome even for um, someone who who you know in most instances is using that laser in in a way that's very conservative um, just by by sheer sort of volume of procedures, we increase the risk of the unintended side effect or the the damaged lingual nerve, don't we? Really? Yeah, I, I think that you know it's it's complicated. There are lots of factors, aren't there? Well, that's that's right. Well, thanks for listening. It's been great to have your company, and remember to check out the nonprofit website possumsonline.com for lots of free resources and programs and the publications that form the evidence base to neuroprotective developmental care or the possums programs as together we grow joy in early life i hope you tune in again soon bye for now